Okay, we are in chapter uh, 14. Real Life is Meeting is the name of the chapter. And in section 3 is where we finished. Last week, Jane had the vision of the earthly, earthly wraith of Venus and the little dwarves who wrecked the place. And she went off to talk to the director. Section 3. Mr. Bultitude's mind was as furry and as unhuman in shape as his body. He did not remember, as a man in his situation would have remembered, the provincial zoo from which he had escaped during a fire, not his first snarling and terrified arrival at the manor, not the slow stages whereby he had learned to love and trust its inhabitants. He did not know that he loved and trusted them now. He did not know that they were people, nor that he was a bear. Indeed, he did not know that he existed at all. Everything that is represented by the words I and me and thou was absent from his mind. When Mrs. Maggs gave him a tin of golden syrup, as she did every Sunday morning, he did not recognize either a giver or a recipient. Goodness occurred, and he tasted it. And that was all. Hence, his loves might, if you wish, be all described as cupboard loves. Food and warmth, hands that caressed, voices that reassured, were their objects. But if by a cupboard love you mean something cold or calculating, you would be quite misunderstanding the real quality of the beast's sensations. He was no more like a human egoist than he was like a human altruist. There was no prose in his life. The appetencies which a human mind might disdain as covered loves were for him quivering and ecstatic aspirations, which absorbed his whole being, infinite yearnings, stabbed with the threat of tragedy and shot through with the colors of paradise. One of our race, if plunged back for a moment in the warm, trembling, iridescent pool of that pre-Adamite consciousness, would have emerged believing that he had grasped the absolute for the states below reason, and the states above it have, by their common contrast to the life we know, a certain superficial resemblance. Sometimes there returns to us from infancy the memory of a nameless delight or terror, unattached to any delight or dreadful thing, a potent adjective floating in a nounless void, a pure quality. At such moments we have experience of the shallows of that pool, but fathoms deeper than any memory can take us, right down to the central warmth and dimness the bear lived all its life. Today an unusual thing had happened to him. He had gotten out into the garden without being muzzled. He was always muzzled out of doors, not because there was any fear of his becoming dangerous, but because of his partiality for fruit and for the sweeter kinds of vegetables. "'Tisn't that he's not tame,' as Ivy Maggs explained to Jane Studdick, "'but that he isn't honest. "'He wouldn't leave us a thing if we let him have the run of his teeth. "'But today the precaution had been forgotten, "'and the bear had passed a very agreeable morning investigating the turnips. "'Now, in the early afternoon, he had approached the garden wall. "'There was a chestnut tree within the wall, "'which the bear could easily climb, "'and from its branches he could drop down on the far side. "'He was standing looking up at this tree.' Mrs. Maggs would have described his state of mind by saying, he knows perfectly well he's not allowed out of the garden. That was not how it appeared to Mr. Bultitude. He had no morals. But the director had given him certain inhibitions. A mysterious reluctance arose, a clouding of the emotional weather when the wall was too close. But mixed with this there was the opposite impulse to get beyond that wall. 
He did not, of course, know why and was incapable of even raising the question. If the pressure behind this impulse could be translated into human terms at all, it would appear as something more like a mythology than a thought. One met bees in the garden, but never found a beehive. The bees all went away over the wall, and to follow bees was the obvious thing to do. I think there was a sense in the bear's mind, one could hardly call it a picture, of endless green lands beyond the wall and hives innumerable and bees the size of sparrows and waiting there or else walking, tickling, oozing to meet one, something or someone stickier, sweeter, more golden than honey itself. Today this unrest was upon him in an unusual degree. He was missing Ivy Mags. He did not know that there was any such person, and he did not remember her as we know remembering but there was an unspecified lack in his experience. She and the director were, in their different ways, the two main factors in his existence. He felt, in his own fashion, the supremacy of the director. Meetings with him were to the bear what mystical experiences are to Ben, for the director had brought back with him from Venus some shadow of man's lost prerogative to ennoble beasts. In his presence, Mr. Bultitude trembled on the very borders of personality, thought the unthinkable and did the impossible, was troubled and enraptured with gleams from beyond his own woolly world, and came away tired. But with Ivy he was perfectly at home. As a savage who believes in some remote high god is more at home with the little deities of wood and water. It was Ivy who fed him, chased him out of the forbidden places, cuffed him, and talked to him all day long. It was her firm conviction that the creature, quote, understood every word she said, end quote. If you took this literally, it was untrue, but in another sense, it was not so wide of the mark. For much of Ivy's conversation was the expression not of thought, but of feeling, and of feelings Mr. Bultitude, Mr. Bultitude almost shared, feelings of alacrity, snugness, and physical affection. In their own way, they understood one another pretty well. Three times, Mr. Bultitude turned away from the tree and the wall, but each time he came back. Then, very cautiously and quietly, he began to climb the tree. When he got up into the fork, he sat there for a long time. He saw beneath him a steep grassy bank descending to a road. The desire and the inhibition were now both very strong. He sat there for nearly half an hour. Sometimes his mind wandered from the point, and once he nearly went to sleep. In the end, he got down on the outside of the wall. <coughs> when he found <coughs> that the thing had really happened, he became so frightened that he sat still at the bottom of the grassy bank on the very edge of the road. Then he heard a noise. A motor van came into sight. It was driven by a man in the livery of the NICE, and another man in the same livery sat beside him. Oh, I say, said the second man. Pull up, said. What about that? What, said the driver. Haven't you got eyes in your head, said the other. Gore, said Sid, pulling up. A great, a bloody great bear, I say. It couldn't be our own bear, could it? Get on, said his mate. She was in her cage all right this morning. You don't think she could have done a bunk? There'd be hell to pay for you and me. She couldn't have gotten here if she had done a bunk. Bears don't go 40 miles an hour. That ain't the point. But hadn't we better pinch this one? We haven't got no orders, said Sid. No, and we haven't failed to get that blasted wolf either, have we? Wasn't our fault, the old woman, but said she'd sell, wouldn't sell, as you are there to witness, young Len. We did our best. Told her that experiments at Belbury weren't that what she thought. Told her the brute would have the time of its life and it would be made no end of a pet. Never told so many lies in one morning in my life. She'd been got at by someone. Of course it wasn't our fault, but the boss wouldn't take no notice of that. 
Get on or get out at Belbury. Get out, said said. I wish to hell I knew how to. Len spat over the side, and there was a moment's silence. Anyway, said Sid presently, what's the good of taking a bear back? Well, isn't it better than coming back with nothing, said Len? And bears cost money. I know they want another one, and here it is for free. All right, said Sid ironically. If you're so keen on it, just hop out and ask him to step in. Dope, said Len. Not on my bit of dinner you don't, said Sid. You're a bucking good mate to have, said Len, groping in a greasy parcel. It's a good thing for you. I'm not the sort of chap who'd split on you. You've done it already, said the driver. I know all your little games. Len had by this time produced a thick sandwich and was dabbing it with some strong-smelling liquid from a bottle. When it was thoroughly saturated, he opened the door and went a pace forward, still holding the door in one hand. He was now about six yards from the bear, which had remained perfectly still ever since it saw them. He threw the sandwich to it. A quarter of an hour later, Mr. Bultitude lay on his side, unconscious, and breathing heavily. They had no difficulty in tying up his mouth and all four paws, but they had great difficulty in lifting him into the van. That's done something to my ticker, said Sid, pressing his hand to his left side. Curse your ticker, said Len, rubbing the sweat out of his eyes. Come on. Sid climbed back into the driving seat, sat still for a few seconds, panting and muttering, Christ, at intervals. Then he started his engine up, and they drove away. Section 4. For some time now, Mark's waking life was divided between periods by the sleeper's bedside and periods in the room with the spotted ceiling. The training in objectivity which took place in the latter cannot be described fully. The reversal of natural inclination with frost in, which Frost inculcated, inculcated was not spectacular or dramatic, but the details would be unprintable and had indeed a kind of nursery fatuity about them which is best ignored. Often Mark felt that one good roar of coarse laughter would have blown away the whole atmosphere of the thing, but laughter was unhappily out of the question. There indeed lay the horror to perform petty obscenities which a very silly child might have thought funny, all under the unchanging furious inspection of frost with a stopwatch and a notebook and all the ritual of scientific experiment. Some of the things he had to do were mean merely meaningless. On one exercise he had to mount the stepladder and touch some one spot on the ceiling selected by Frost. Just touch it with his forefinger, then come down again. But either by association with the other exercises, or because it really concealed some significance, this proceeding always appeared to Mark to be the most indecent and even inhuman of all his tasks. And day by day, as the process went on, that idea of the straight or the normal, which had occurred to him during his first visit to this room, grew stronger and more solid in his mind till it had become a kind of mountain. He had never before known what an idea meant. He had always thought till now they were things inside one's own head. But now, when his head was continually attacked, and often completely filled with the clinging corruption of the training, this idea towered up above him, something which obviously existed quite independently of himself and had hard rock surfaces which would not give, surfaces he could cling to. The other thing that helped to save him was the man in the bed. Mark's discovery that he really could speak English had led to a curious acquaintance with him. It can hardly be said that they conversed. <clears throat> Both spoke, but the result was hardly conversation as Mark had hitherto understood the term. The man was so very elusive and used gesture so extensively that Mark's less sophisticated modes of communication were almost useless. 
Thus, when Mark explained that he had no tobacco, the man had slapped an imaginary tobacco pouch on his knee at least six times and struck an unimaginary match about as often, each time jerking his head sideways with a look of such relish as Mark had seldom seen on a human face. Then Mark went on to explain that though they, in quotes, were not foreigners, they were extremely dangerous people and that probably the stranger's best plan would be to preserve his silence. Ah, said the stranger, jerking his head again. Ah, eh? Then, without exactly laying his finger on his lips, he went through an elaborate pantomime which clearly meant the same thing. And it was impossible for a long time to get him off this subject. He went back and back to the theme of secrecy. Ah, he said, don't get nothing out of me. I tell ee, don't get nothing out of me, eh? I tell ee, you would be nose, ah? And his look embraced Mark in such an apparently gleeful conspiracy that it warmed the heart. Believing this matter to be now sufficiently clear, Mark began, but as regards the future, only to be met by another pantomime of secrecy, followed by the word, eh? In a tone which demanded an answer. Yes, of course, said Mark. We are both in considerable danger, and, ah, said the man, foreigners, eh? No, no, said Mark. I told you that they weren't. They seem to think you are, though, and that's why. That's right, interrupted the man. I know. Foreigners, I call them. I know. They get nothing out of me. You and me's all right, ah? Huh? I've been trying to think out some sort of plan, said Mark. Ah, said the man approvingly. And I was wondering, began Mark, when the man suddenly leaned forwards and said with extraordinary energy, I tell you, what, said Mark, I got a plan. What is it? Ah, said the man, winking at Mark with infinite knowingness and rubbing his belly. Go on, what is it, said Mark. How'd it be, said the man, sitting up and applying his left thumb to his right forefinger as if to about to propound the first step in a philosophical argument. How'd it be now? if you and I made ourselves a bit of nice bit of toasted cheese. Mm -hmm. I meant a plan for escape, said Mark. Ah, replied the man, my old dad now, he never had a day's illness in his life, eh? How's that for a bit of all right, eh? It's a remarkable record, said Mark. <laughs> ah, you may say so, replied the other, on the road all his life, never had a stomachache, eh? And here, as if Mark might not know that malady, he went through a long, extraordinarily vivid, dumb show. Open air life suited him, I suppose, said Mark. And what did he attribute his health to, asked the man. He pronounced the word attribute with great relish, laying the accent on the first syllable. I ask everyone, what did he attribute his health to? Mark was about to reply when the man indicated by gesture that the question was purely rhetorical and that he did not wish to be interrupted. He had attributed his health, continued the speaker, with great solemnity to eating toasted cheese. Keeps the water out of the stomach. That's what it does, eh? Makes the lining. Stands to reason, ah? Huh? In several later interviews, <coughs> Mark endeavored to discover something of the stranger's own history, and particularly how he'd been brought to Belbury. This was not easy to do, for though the tramp's conversation was very autobiographical, it was filled almost entirely with accounts of conversations in which he had made stunning repartees whose points remained wholly obscure. Even where there was less intellectual and character, the allusions were all too difficult for Mark, who was quite ignorant of the life of the roads, though he had once written a very authoritative article on vagrancy. But by re repeated, and as he got to know this man, more cautious questioning, he couldn't help get the idea that the tramp had been made to give up his clothes to a total stranger and then put to sleep. He never got the story in so many words. The tramp insisted on talking as if Mark already knew it already, and any pressure for more accurate account produced only a series of nods, winks, and highly confidential gestures. As for the identity or appearance of the person who had taken his clothes, nothing whatever could be made out. The nearest Mark ever got to it, after hours of talk and deep potations, 
some, was some such statement as, ah, he was a one, or he was a kind of, eh, you know, or that was a customer that was. These statements were made with enormous gusto as though the theft of the tramp's clothes had excited his deepest admiration. Indeed, throughout the man's conversation, this gusto was the most striking characteristic. He never passed any kind of moral judgment on the various things that had been done to him in the course of his career, nor did he even try to explain them. Much that was unjust, and still more that was simply unintelligible, seemed to be accepted, not only without resentment, but with a certain satisfaction provided only that it was striking. Even about his present situation, he showed very much less curiosity than Mark would have thought possible. It did not make sense, but then the man did not expect things to make sense. He deplored the absence of tobacco and regarded the foreigners as very dangerous people, but the main thing, obviously, was to eat and drink as much as possible while the present condition lasted. And gradually, Mark fell into line. The man's breath, and indeed his body, were malodorous, and his methods of eating were gross. But the sort of continual picnic which the two shared carried Mark back into the realm of childhood, which we have all enjoyed before nicety began. Each understood perhaps an eighth part of what the other said, but a kind of intimacy grew between them. Mark never noticed until years later that here, where there was no room for vanity and no more power or security than that of children playing in a giant's kitchen, he had unawares become a member of a circle as secret, and as strongly fenced against outsiders as any he had dreamed of. Every now and then their tete-a-tete was interrupted. Frost or Wither or both would come in, introducing some stranger who addressed the tramp in an unknown language, failed completely to get any response, and was ushered out again. The tramp's habit of submission to the unintelligible mixed with a kind of animal cunning stood him in a good stead during these interviews. Even without Mark's advice, it would never have occurred to him to undeceive his captors by replying in English. Undeceiving was an activity wholly foreign to his mind. For the rest, his expression of tranquil indifference varied occasionally by extremely sharp looks, but never by the least sign of anxiety of bewilderment, left his interrogators mystified. Wither could never find in his face the evil he was looking for, but neither could he find any of that virtue which would for him have been a danger signal. The tramp was a type of man he had never met. The dupe, the terrified victim, the toady, the would-be accomplice, the rival, the honest man with loathing and hatred in his eyes were all familiar to him, but not this. And then, one day, there came an interview that was different. Section 5 It sounds rather like a mythological picture by Titian come to life, said the director with a smile when Jane had described her experience in the lodge. Yes, but, said Jane, and then stopped. I see, she began again. It was very like that. Not only the woman and the, the dwarves, but the glow, as if the air were on fire. But I always thought I liked Titian. I suppose I wasn't really taking the picture seriously enough, just chattering about the Renaissance the way one did. You didn't like it when it came out into real life? Jane shook her head. Was it real, sir? She asked presently. Are there such things? Yes, said the director, it was real enough. Oh, there are thousands of things within this square mile that I don't know about yet. And I dare say that the presence of Merlinus brings out certain things. We're not living exactly in the 20th century as long as he's here. We overlap a bit. The focus is blurred. And you, yourself, you are a seer. You are perhaps bound to meet her. She's what she'll get if you won't have the other. How do you mean, sir, said Jane? You said she was a little like Mother Dimble. 
so she is. But Mother Dimble was something left out. Mother Dimble is friends with all that world, as Merlinus is friends with the woods and rivers. But he isn't a wood or a river himself. She has not rejected it, but she has baptized it. She is a Christian wife. And you, you know, are not. Neither are you a virgin. You have put yourself where you must see meet that old woman, and you have rejected all that has happened to her since Maladil came to earth. So you get her raw, not stronger than Mother Dimble would find her, but untransformed, demoniac, and you don't like it. Hasn't that been the history of your life? You mean, said Jane slowly, I've been repressing something? The director laughed, just that loud, assured bachelor laughter which had often infuriated her on other lips. Yes, he said, but don't think I'm talking of Freudian repressions. He knew only half the facts. It isn't a question of inhibitions, inculcated shame against natural desire. I'm afraid there's no niche in the world for people who won't be either pagan or Christian. Just imagine a man who was too dainty to eat with his fingers and yet wouldn't use forks. His laughter, rather than his words, had reddened Jane's cheeks, and she was staring at him open-mouthed. Assuredly, the director was not in the least like Mother Dimble, but an odious realization that he was, in this matter, on Mother Dimble's side, that he also, though he did not belong to that hot-colored, archaic world, stood somehow in good diplomatic relations with it, from which she was excluded, had struck her like a blow. Some old female dream of finding a man who, quote, really understood, end quote, was being insulted. She took it for granted, half unconsciously, that the director was the most virginal of his sex, but she had not realized that this would leave his masculinity still on the other side of the stream from herself, and even steeper, more emphatic than that of common men. Some knowledge of a world beyond nature she had already gained from living in his house, and more from fear of death that night in the dingle. But she had been conceiving this world as spiritual, in quotes, in the negative sense, as some neutral or democratic vacuum where differences disappeared, where sex and sense were not transcended but simply taken away, now the suspicion dawned upon her that there might be differences and contrasts all the way up, richer, sharper, even fiercer, at every rung of the ascent. How, if this invasion of her own being in marriage, from which she had recoiled, often to the very teeth of instinct, had not as she had supposed, mere, were not, as she su had supposed, merely a relic of animal life or patriarchal barbarism, but rather the lowest, the first, and the easiest form of some shocking contact with reality, which would have to be repeated, but in ever larger and more disturbing modes, on the highest levels of all. Yes, said the director, there is no escape. If it were a virginal rejection of the male, he would allow it. Such souls can bypass the male and go on to meet something far more masculine higher up, to which they must make a yet deeper surrender. But your trouble has been what old poets called donguerre. We call it pride. You are offended by the masculine itself, the loud, eruptive, possessive thing, the gold lion, the bearded bull, which breaks through hedges and scatters the little kingdom of your primness as the dwarves scatter the carefully made bed. The male you could have escaped, for it exists only on the biological level. But the masculine none of us can escape. What is above and beyond all things is so masculine that we are all feminine in relation to it. You had better agree with your adversary quickly. You mean I shall have to become a Christian? said Jane. It looks like it, said the director.
But I still don't see what this has to do with, with Mark, said Jane. This was perhaps not perfectly true. The vision of the universe, which she had begun to see in the last few minutes, had a curiously stormy quality about it. It was bright, darting, and overpowering. Old Testament imagery of eyes and wheels, for the first time in her life, took on some possibility of meaning. And mixed with this was the sense that she had been maneuvered into a false position. It ought to have been she who was saying these things to the Christians. Hers ought to have been the vivid, perilous world brought against her, their gray, formalized one. Hers, the quick, vital movements, and theirs, the stained-glass attitudes. That was the antithesis she was used to. This time, in a sudden flash of purple and crimson, she remembered what stained-glass was really like. And where Mark stood in all this new world, she did not know. Certainly not quite in his old place. Something which she liked to think of as the opposite of Mark, had been taken away. Something civilized, or modern, or scholarly, or of late, spiritual, in quotes, which did not want to possess her, which valued her for the odd collection of qualities she called herself. Something without hands that gripped and without demands upon her. But if there was no such thing? Playing for time, she asked, who was that huge woman? I'm not sure, said the director, but I think I can make a guess. Did you know that all the planets are represented in each? No, sir, I didn't. Apparently there are. There is no Oyarsa in heaven who has not got his representative on earth, and there is no world where you could not meet a little unfallen partner of our own black archon, a kind of other self. That is why there was an Italian Saturn as well as a heavenly one, and a Cretan Jove as well as an Olympian. It was these earthly wraiths of the high intelligences that men met in old times, when they reported that they had seen the gods. It was with those that a man like Merlin was, at times, conversant. Nothing from beyond the moon has ever really descended. What concerns you more, there is a terrestrial as well as a celestial Venus, Paralandra's wraith as well as Paralandra. And you think, I do. I have long known that this house is deeply under her influence. There is even copper in the soil. Also, the Earth Venus will be specially active here at present, for it is tonight that a heavenly archetype will really descend. I had forgotten, said Jane. You will not forget it once it has happened. All of you had better stay together, in the kitchen perhaps. Do not come upstairs. Tonight I will bring Merlin before my masters, all five of them, Vera Trubia, Paralandra, Malacandra, Glund, and Lurga. He will be opened. Powers will pass into him. What will he do, sir? The director laughed. The first step is easy. The enemies at Belbury are already looking for experts in archaic Western dialects, preferably Celtic. We shall send them an interpreter. Yes, by the splendor of Christ, we will send them one. Upon them, in quotes, he, a spirit of frenzy, sent to call in haste for their destroyer, in quote. They have advertised in the papers for one. And after the first step, well, you know, it will be easy. In fighting those who serve devils, one always has this on one side. Their masters hate them as much as they hate us. The moment we disable the human pawns enough to make them useless to hell, their own masters finish the work for us. They break their tools. There was a sudden knock at the door, and Grace Ironwood entered. Ivy is back, sir, she said. I think you'd better see her. No, she's alone. She never saw her husband. The sentence is over, but they haven't released him. He's been sent on to Belbury for remedial treatment, under some new regulation. 
Apparently, it does not require a sentence from a court, but she's not very coherent. She's in great distress. Section 6. Jane had gone into the garden to think. She accepted what the director had said, yet it seemed to her nonsensical. His comparison between Mark's love and God, since apparently there was a God, struck her nascent spirituality as indecent and irreverent. Religion ought to mean a realm in which her haunting female fear of being treated as a thing, an object of barter and desire and possession, would be set permanently at rest, and what she called her, quote, true self, would soar upwards and expand in some freer and purer world. For still she thought that religion, in quotes, was a kind of exhalation or a cloud of incense, something streaming up from specially gifted souls toward a receptive heaven. Then quite sharply it occurred to her that the director never talked about religion, nor did the Dimbles nor Camilla. They talked about God. They had no picture in their minds of some mist steaming upward, rather of strong, skillful hands thrust down to make and mend, perhaps even to destroy. Supposing one were a thing, after all, a thing designed and invented by someone else, and valued for qualities quite different from what one had decided to regard as one's true self. Supposing all those people who, from the bachelor uncles down to Mark and Mother Dimble, had infuriatingly found her sweet and fresh when she wanted to find them to find her also interesting and important, had all along been simply right and perceived the sort of thing she was. Supposing Maladil on this subject agreed with them and not with her. For one moment she had a ridiculous and scorching vision of a world in which God himself would never understand, nev never take her with full seriousness. Then, at one particular corner of the gooseberry patch, the change came. What waited her there was a serious was serious to the degree of sorrow and beyond. There was no form nor sound. The mold under the bushes, the moss on the path, and the little brick border were not visibly changed. But they were changed. A boundary had been crossed. She had come into a world, or into a person, or into the presence of a person. Something expectant, patient, inexorable, met her with no veil or protection between. In the closeness of that contact, she perceived at once that the director's words had been entirely misleading. This demand, which now pressed upon her, was not, even by analogy, like any other demand. It was the origin of all right demands and contained them. In its light you could understand them, but from them you could know nothing of it. There was nothing, and never had been anything like this. Now there was nothing except this. Yet also, everything had been like this. Only by being like this had anything existed. In this height and depth and breadth, the little idea of herself, which she had hitherto called me, dropped down and vanished, unfluttering, into a bottomless distance, like a bird in a space without air. The name me was the name of a being whose existence she had never suspected, a being that did not yet fully exist, but which was demanded. It was a person, not the person she had thought, yet also a thing, a made thing, made to please another, and in him, in him to please all others, a thing being made at this very moment, without its choice, in the midst, in the shape of, in a shape it had never dreamed of. And the making went on amidst a kind of splendor, or sorrow, or both, whereof she could not tell whether it was in the molding hands or in the kneaded lump. Words take too long. 
to be aware of all this and to know that it had already gone, made one single experience. It was revealed only in its departure. The largest thing that had ever happened to her had, apparently, found room for itself in a moment of time too short to be called time at all. Her hand closed on nothing but a memory, and as it closed, without an instant's pause, the voices of those who have not joy rose howling and chattering from every corner of her being. Take care, draw back, keep your head, don't commit yourself, they said. And then, more subtly, from another quarter, you've had a religious, religious experience. This is very interesting, not everyone does. How much better you will now understand the 17th century poets. Or, from a third direction, more sweetly, go on, try to get it again. It will please the director. But her defenses had been captured, and these counterattacks were unsuccessful. Chapter 15, The Descent of the Gods The whole house at St. Anne's was empty but for two rooms. In the kitchen, drawn a little closer than usual about the fire and with the shutters closed, sat Dimble and McPhee and Deniston and the women. Removed from them by many a long vacancy of stair and passage, the Pendragon and Merlin were together in the blue room. If anyone had gone up the stairs and on to the lobby outside the blue room, he would have found something other than fear that barred his way, and almost physical resistance. If he had succeeded in forcing his way forward against it, he would have come into a region of tingling sounds that were clearly not voices, though they had articulation, and if the passage were quite dark, he would probably have seen a faint light, not like fire or moon, under the director's door. I do not think he could have reached the door itself unbidden. Already the whole house would have seemed to him to be tilting and plunging like a ship on a bay of Biscay gale. He would have been horribly compelled to feel this earth not as the bottom of the universe, but as a ball spinning and rolling onwards, both at delirious speed and not through emptiness, but through some densely inhabited and intricately structured medium. He would have known sensuously, until his outraged senses forsook him, that the visitants in that room were in it, not because they were at rest, but because they glanced and wheeled through the packed reality of heaven, which men call empty space, to keep their beams on this spot of the moving earth's hide. The Druid and Ransom had begun to wait for these visitors soon after sundown. Ransom was on his sofa. Merlin sat beside him, his hands clasped, his body a little bent forward. Sometimes a drop of sweat trickled coldly down his gray cheek. He had at first addressed himself to Neil, but Ransom forbade him. See thou do it not, he said. Have you forgotten that they are our fellow servants? The windows were uncurtained, and all the light that there was in the room came thence. Frosty red when they began their waiting, but later lit with stars. Long before anything happened in the blue room, the party in the kitchen had made their ten o'clock tea. It was while they sat drinking it that the change occurred. <coughs> Up till now, they had instinctively been talking in subdued voices, as children talk in a room where their elders are busied about some august, incomprehensible manner, a funeral, or the reading of a will. Now, of a sudden, they all began talking loudly at once, each, not contentiously, but delightedly, interrupting the others. A stranger coming into the kitchen would have thought they were drunk, not suddenly, but gaily drunk, would have seen heads bent close together, eyes dancing, an excited wealth of gesture. What they said, none of the party could afterwards remember. Dimble maintained that they had been chiefly engaged in making puns. 
McPhee denied that he had ever, even that night, made a pun, but all agreed that they had been extraordinarily witty. If not plays upon words, but certain plays upon thoughts, paradoxes, fancies, fancies, anecdotes, theories laughingly advanced yet, on consideration, well worth taking seriously, had flowed from them and over them with dazzling prodigality. Even Ivy forgot her great sorrow. Mother Dimble always remembered Deniston and her husband as they had stood, one on each side of the fireplace, in a gay intellectual duel, each capping the other, each rising above the other, up and up like birds or aeroplanes in combat. If only one could have remembered what they said, for never in her life had she heard such talk, such eloquence, such melody. Song would have added nothing to it. Such toppling structures of double meaning, such skyrockets of metaphor and illusion. A moment after that, they were all silent. Calm fell, as suddenly as when one goes out of the wind behind a wall. They sat staring upon one another, tired and a little self-conscious. Upstairs, this first change had a different operation. There came an instant at which both men braced themselves. Ransom gripped the side of his sofa. Merlin grasped his own knees and set his teeth. A rod of colored light, whose color no man could name or picture, darted between them. No more to see than that, but seeing was the least part of their experience. Quick agitation seized them, a kind of boiling and bubbling in mind and heart, which shook their bodies also. It went to a rhythm of such fierce speed that they feared their sanity must be shaken into a thousand fragments, and then it seemed that this had actually happened. But it did not matter, for all the fragments, needle-pointed desires, brisk merriments, lynx-eyed thoughts went rolling to and fro like glittering drops and reunited themselves. It was well that both men had some knowledge of poetry. The doubling, splitting, and recombining of thoughts which now went on in them would have been unendurable for one whom that art had not already instructed in the counterpoint of the mind, the mastery of doubled and troubled vision. For Ransom, whose study had been for many years in the realm of words, it was heavenly pleasure. He found himself sitting within the very heart of language in the white-hot furnace of essential speech. All fact was broken, splashed into cataracts, caught, turned inside out, kneaded, slain, and reborn as meaning. For the Lord of Meaning himself, the herald, the messenger, the slayer of Argus, was with them, the angel that spins nearest the sun, Viratrobia, whom men called Mercury and Thoth. Down in the, down in the kitchen, drowsiness stole over them after the orgy of speaking had come to an end. Jane having nearly fallen asleep, was startled by her book falling from her hand and looked about her. How warm it was, how comfortable and familiar. She had always liked wood fires, but tonight the smell of the log seemed more than ordinarily sweet. She began to think it was sweeter than could, be than could possibly be that a smell of burning cedar or of incense pervaded the room. It thickened. Fragrant names hovered in her mind, nard and cassia's balmy smells, and all Arabia breathing from a box, even something more subtly sweet, perhaps maddeningly, why not forbidden, but she knew it was commanded. She was too drowsy to think deeply how this could be. The dimbles were talking together, but in so low a voice that others could not hear. Their faces appeared to her transfigured. She could no longer see that they were old, only mature like ripe fields in August, serene and golden with the tranquility of fulfilled desire. On her other side, Arthur had said something in Camilla's ear. 
there too. But as the warmth and sweetness of that rich air fully, now fully mastered her brain, she could hardly bear to look on them, not the, through envy, that thought was far away, but because of a sort of brightness flowed from them that dazzled her, as if the god and goddess in them burdened through their bodies and through their clothes and shone before her in a young, double-natured nakedness of rose-red spirit that overcame her. And all about them, danced as she half saw, not the gross and ridiculous dwarves which she had seen that afternoon, but grave and ardent spirits, bright-winged, with their boyish shapes smooth and slender like ivory rods. In the blue room, also Ransom and Merlin felt about this time that the temperature had risen. The windows, they did not see how or when, had swung open. At their opening, the temperature did not drop, for it was from without that the warmth came. Through the bare branches across the ground, which was once more stiffening with frost, a summer breeze was blowing into the room, but the breeze of such a summer as England never has. Laden like heavy barges that glide near gunwale under, laden so heavily you would have thought it could not move, laden with ponderous fragrance of night-scented flowers, sticky gums, groves that drop odors, and the cool savor of midnight fruit, it stirred the curtains, it lifted a letter that lay on the table, it lifted the hair which had a moment before been plastered on Merlin's forehead. The room was rocking, they were afloat, a soft tingling and shivering as a foam and breaking bubbles ran over their flesh, tears ran down Ransom's cheeks. He alone knew from what seas and what islands that breeze blew. Merlin did not, but in him also the inconsolable wound with which man is born, waked and ached at this touching. Low syllables of prehistoric Celtic self-pity murmured from his lips. These yearnings and fondlings were, however, only the forerunners of the goddess, as the whole of her virtue seized, focused, and held that spot of the rolling earth in her long beam. Something harder, shriller, more perilously ecstatic came out of the center of all that softness. Both the humans trembled, Merlin because he did not know what was coming, Ransom because he knew. And now it came. It was fiery, sharp, bright, and ruthless, ready to kill, ready to die, outspeeding light. It was charity, not as mortals imagine it, not even as it has been humanized for them since the incarnation of the word, but the translunary virtue fallen upon them direct from the third heaven, unmitigated. They were blinded, scorched, deafened. They thought it would burn their bones. They could not bear that it should continue. They could not bear that it should cease. So Paralandra, triumphant among planets, whom men call Venus, came and was with them in the room. Down in the kitchen, McPhee sharply drew back his chair so that it grated on the tiled floor like a pencil squeaking on a slate. Man, he exclaimed, it's a shame for us to be sitting here looking at the fire. If the director hadn't got a game leg himself, I'll bet you he'd have found some other way for us to go to work. Camilla's eyes flashed toward him. Go on, she said, go on. What do you mean, McPhee, said Dimble. It means fighting, said Camilla. They'd be too many for us, I'm afraid, said Arthur Denniston. Maybe that, said McPhee. But maybe there'd be too many of for us this way, too. It would be grand to have one go at them before the end. To tell you the truth, I sometimes feel I don't greatly care what happens, but I wouldn't be easy in my grave if I knew they'd won and I never had my hands on them. I'd like to be able to say, as an old sergeant said to me in the first war, about a bit of raid we did near Monchy. 
Our fellows did it all with the butt end, you know. Sir, he says, did you ever hear anything like the way their heads cracked? I think that's disgusting, said Mother Dimble. That's part is, I suppose, said Camilla, but, oh, if one could have a charge in the old style, I don't mind anything once I'm on a horse. I don't understand it, said Dimble. I'm not like you, McPhee, I'm not brave. But I was just thinking as you spoke that I don't feel afraid of being killed and hurt as I used to do. Not tonight. We may be, I suppose, said Jane. As long as we're all together, said Mother Dimble. It might be, no, I don't mean anything heroic. It might be nice to die, a nice way to die. And suddenly all their faces and voices were changed. They were laughing again, and it was a different kind of laughter. Their love for one another became intense. Each, looking on all the rest, thought, I'm lucky to be here. I could die with these. But McPhee was humming to himself, King William said, be not dismayed for the loss of one commander. Upstairs it was, at first much the same. Merlin saw in memory the wintry grass of Baden Hill, the long banner of the Virgin fluttering above the heavy British Roman cataphracts, the yellow-haired barbarians. He heard the snap of the bows, the click-click of steel points on wooden shields, the cheers, the howling, and the ring of struck mail. He remembered also the evening, fires twinkling along the hill, frost making the gashes smart, starlight on a pool fouled with blood, eagles crowding together on the pale sky. And Ransom, it may be, remembered his long struggle in the caves of Paralandra. But all this passed. Something tonic and lusty and cheerily cold like a sea breeze was coming over them. There was no fear anywhere. The blood inside them flowed as if to a marching song. They felt themselves taking their places in the ordered rhythm of the universe, side by side with punctual seasons and patterned atoms and the obeying seraphim. Under the immense weight of their obedience, their wills stood up straight and untiring like caryatids. Eased by all fickleness and all protestings, they stood gay, light, nimble, and alert. They had outlived all anxieties. Care was a word without meaning. To live meant to share in this processional pomp. Ransom do, as a man knows when he touches iron, the clear, taut splendor of that celestial spirit which now flashed between them. Vigilant Malacandra, captain of a cold orb, whom men call bars and mavors and tear, and put his hand in the wolf's who put his hand in the wolf mouth. Ransom greeted his guests in the tongue of heaven, but he warned Merlin that now the time was coming when he must play the man. The three gods who were had already met in the blue room were less unlike humanity than the two whom they still awaited. In Virachubia and Venus and Malacandra were represented those two of the seven genders which bear a certain analogy to the biological sexes and can therefore be in some measure understood by men. It would not be so with those who were now preparing to descend. These also doubtless had their genders, but we had no clue to them. These would be mightier energies, ancient Eldils, steersmen of giant worlds, which have never from the beginning been subdued to the sweet humiliations of organic life. Stir the fire, Deniston, for any sake. That's a cold night, said McPhee. It must be cold outside, said Dimble. All thought of that, of stiff grass, hen roosts, dark places in the middle of woods, graves. Then of the sun's dying, the earth gripped, suffocated in airless cold, the black sky lit only with stars, and then, not even stars, the heat death of the universe, utter and final blackness of non-entity from which nature knows no return. Another life? Possibly, thought McPhee. I believe, thought Deniston. 
With the old life gone from all its times, all its hours and days gone, can even omnipotence bring back? Where do years go and why? Men never would understand it. The misgiving deepened. Perhaps there was nothing to be understood. Saturn, whose name in the heavens is Lurga, stood in the blue room. His spirit lay upon the house or even on the whole earth with a cold pressure such as might flatten the very orb of Talus to a wafer. Matched against the lead-like burden of his antiquity, the other gods themselves perhaps felt young and ephemeral. It was a mountain of centuries sloping up from the highest antiquity we can conceive, up and up like a mountain whose summit never comes into sight, not to eternity where the thought can rest, but into more and still more time, into freezing wastes and silence of unnameable numbers. It was also strong like a mountain, its age no more no mere morass of time where imagination can sink in reverie, but a living, self-remembering duration which repelled lighter intelligences from its structure as granite flings back waves, itself unwithered and undecayed, but able to wither any who approach it unadvised. Ransom and Merlin suffered a sensation of unendurable cold, and all that was strength in Lurga became sorrow as it entered them. Yet Lurga in that room was overmatched. Suddenly, a greater spirit came, one whose influence tempered and almost transformed to his own quality the skill of leaping Mercury, the clearness of Mars, the subtler vibration of Venus, and even the numbing weight of Saturn. In the kitchen, his coming was felt. No one, felt after, no one afterwards knew how it happened, but somehow the kettle was put on, and the hot toddy was brewed. Arthur, the only musician among them, was bidden to get out his fiddle. The chairs were pushed back, the floor cleared. They danced. What they danced, no one could remember. It was some round dance, no modern shuffling. It involved beating the floor, clapping of hands, leaping high. No one, while it lasted, thought himself or his fellows ridiculous. It may, in fact, have been some village measure, not ill-suited to the tile kitchen. The spirit in which they danced, it was not so. It seemed to each that the room was filled with kings and queens, and the wildness of their dance expressed heroic energy, and its quieter movements had seized the very spirit behind all noble ceremonies. Upstairs, his mighty beam turned the blue room into the blaze of light. Before the other angels a man might sink, before this he might die, but if he lived at all, he would laugh. If you had caught one breath of the air that came from him, you would have felt yourself taller than before. Though you were a cripple, your walk would have become stately. Though a beggar, you would have worn your rags magnanimously. Kingship and power and festal pomp and courtesy shot from him as sparks fly from an anvil. The pealing of bells, the blowing of trumpets, the spreading out of banners are means used on earth to make a faint symbol of his quality. It was like a long sunlit wave, creamy crested and arched with emerald, that comes on nine feet tall with roaring and terror and unquenchable laughter. It was like the first beginning of music in the halls of some king so high and at some festival so solemn that a tremor akin to fear runs through young hearts when they hear it. For this was the great Glandoyarsa, king of kings, through whom the joy of creation principally blows across these fields of Arbol, known to men in old times as Jove, and under that name, by fatal but not inexplicable misprision, confused with his maker. So little did they dream by how many degrees the stair, even of created being, rises above him. 
At his coming, there was holiday in the blue room. The two mortals momentarily caught up into the Gloria, which those five excellent natures perpetually sing, forgot for a time the lower and more immediate purpose of their meeting. Then they proceeded to operation. Merlin received the power into him. He looked different next day, partly because his beard had been shaved, but also because he was no longer his own man. No one doubted that his final severance from the body was near. Later in the day, McPhee drove him off and dropped him in the neighborhood of Belbury. Section 2 Mark had fallen into Woodzo's in the tramp's bedroom that day when he was startled and driven suddenly to collect himself by the arrival of visitors. Frost came in first and held the door open. Two others followed. One was the deputy director. The other was a man whom Mark had not seen before. This person was dressed in a rusty cassock and carried in his hand a wide-brimmed black hat such as priests wear in many parts of the continent. He was a very big man, and the cassock perhaps made him look bigger. He was clean-shaven, revealing a large face with heavy and complicated folds in it, and he walked with his head a little bowed. Mark decided that he was a simple soul, probably an obscure member of some religious order who happened to be an authority on some even more obscure language. And it was to Mark rather odious to see him standing between those two birds of prey, wither, effusive and flattering on his right, and frost on his left, stiff as a ramrod, waiting with scientific attention, but also, as Mark could now see, with a certain cold dislike for the result of the new experiment. Wither talked to the stranger for some moments in a language which Mark could not follow, but which he recognized as Latin. A priest, obviously, thought Mark, but I wonder where from. Wither knows most of the ordinary languages. Would the old chap be a Greek? He doesn't look like a Levantine. More probably a Russian. But at this point, Mark's attention was diverted. The tramp who had closed his eyes when he heard the door handle turning had suddenly opened them, seen the stranger, and then shut them tighter than before. After this, his behavior was peculiar. He began admitting a series of very exaggerated <coughs> snores and turned his back to the company. The stranger took a step nearer to the bed and spoke two syllables in a low voice. For a second or two, the tramp lay as he was, but seemed to be afflicted with a shivering fit. Then slowly, but with a continuous movement, as when the bows of a ship come round in obedience to the rudder, he rolled round and lay staring up into the other's face. His mouth and his eyes were both open very wide. From certain jerkings of his head and hands, from certain ghastly attempts to smile, Mark concluded that he was trying to say something, probably of a deprecatory or insinuating kind. What next followed took his breath away. The stranger spoke again and then, with much facial contortion mixed with coughs and stammers and spluttering and expe expectoration, there came out of the tramp's mouth in a high, unnatural voice, syllables, words, a whole sentence in some language that was neither Latin nor English. All this time the stranger kept his eyes fixed on those of the tramp. The stranger spoke again. This time the tramp replied at much greater length and seemed to manage the unknown language a little more easily, though his voice remained quite unlike that in which Mark had heard him talking for the last few days. At the end of his speech he sat up in bed and pointed to where Wither and Frost were standing. Then the stranger appeared to ask him a question. The tramp spoke for the third time. At this reply, the stranger started back, crossed himself several times, and exhibited every sign of terror. He turned and spoke rapidly in Latin to the other two. Something happened to their faces when he spoke. They looked like dogs who have just picked up a scent. 
Then, with a loud exclamation, the stranger caught up his skirts and made a bolt for the door. But the scientists were too quick for him. For a few minutes, all three were wrangling there, frost teeth bared like an animal's and the loose mask of Wither's face wearing, for once, a quite unambiguous expression. The old priest was being threatened. Mark found that he himself had taken a step forward, but before he could make up his mind how to act, the stranger, shaking his head and holding out his hands, had come timidly back to the bedside. It was an odd thing that the tramp, who had relaxed during the struggle at the door, should suddenly stiffen again and fix his eyes on the frightened old man, as if he were awaiting orders. More words, and the unknown language followed, the tramp once more pointed at Wither and Frost. The stranger turned and spoke to them in Latin, apparently translating. Wither and Frost looked at one another as if each waited for his fellow to act. What followed was pure lunacy. With infinite caution, wheezing and creaking, down went the whole shaking senility of the deputy director, down onto its knees, and half a second later, with a jerky metallic movement, Frost got down beside him. When he was down, he suddenly looked over his shoulder to where Mark was standing, the flash of pure hatred in his face, but hatred, as it were, crystallized so that it was no longer a passion and had no heat in it, was like touching metal in the Arctic where metal burns. Kneel, he bleated, and instantly turned his head. <coughs> Mark never could remember afterwards whether he simply forgot to obey this order or whether his real rebellion dated from that moment. The tramp spoke again, always with his eyes fixed on those of the man in the cassock, and again the latter translated and then stood aside. Wither and Frost began going forward on their knees till they reached the bedside. That tramp's hairy, dirty hand with its bitten nails was thrust out to them. They kissed it. Then it seemed that some further order was given them. They rose, and Mark perceived that Wither was gently expostulating in Latin against this order. He kept on indicating Frost, the words venia tua, each time amended to venia vestra, with your kind permission, or if you will pardon me, recurred so often that Mark could pick them out. But apparently the expostulation was unsuccessful. A few moments later, Frost and Wither had both left the room. As the door shut, the tramp collapsed like a deflated balloon. He rolled himself to and fro on the bed, muttering, Gore blimey, couldn't have believed it. It's a knockout, a fair knockout. But Mark had little leisure to attend to this. He found that the stranger was addressing him, and though he could not understand the words, he looked up. Instantly, he wished to look away again and found that he could not. He might have claimed, with some reason, that he was by now an ex expert in the endurance of alarming faces. But that did not alter the fact that when he looked on this, he felt himself afraid. Almost before he had time to realize this, he felt himself drowsy. A moment later, he fell into his chair and slept. Well, said Frost, as soon as they found themselves outside the door. It is uh, profoundly perplexing, said the deputy director. They walked down the passage, conversing in low tones as they went. It certainly looked, I say, looked, continued Frost, as if the man in the bed were hypnotized and the Basque priest were in charge of the situation. Oh, surely, my dear friend, that would be a most disquieting hypothesis. Excuse me, I have made no hypothesis. I am describing how it looked. And how, on your hypothesis, forgive me, but that is what it is, would a Basque priest come to invent the story that our guest was Merlinus Ambrosius? That is the point. If the man in the bed is not Merlinus, then someone else, and someone quite outside our calculations, namely the priest, knows our whole plan of campaign. 
And that, my dear friend, is why the retention of both these persons and a certain extreme delicacy in our attitude to both is required, at least, until we have some further light. They must, of course, be detained. I should hardly say detained. It has implications. I do not venture to express any doubt at present as to the identity of our distinguished guest. There is no question of detention. On the contrary, the most cordial welcome, the most meticulous courtesy. Do I understand that you have always pictured Merlinus entering the Institute as a dictator rather than a colleague? As to that, said Wither, my conception of the personal or even official relations between us has always been elastic and ready for all necessary adaptations. <coughs> it would be a very real grief to me if I thought you were allowing any misplaced sense of your own dignity. Ah, uh, in short, provided he is Merlinus, you understand me. Where are you taking us at the moment? to my apartments. If you remember, the request was that we provide our guests with some clothes. There was no request. We were ordered. To this, the deputy director made no reply, but when both men were in his bedroom, the door was shut. Frost said, I am not satisfied. You do not seem to realize the dangers of the situation. We must take into account the possibility that the man is not Merlinus, and if he is not Merlinus, then the priest knows things he ought not to know. To allow its an imposter and a spy to remain at large in the Institute is out of the question. We must find out at once where the priest gets his knowledge from, and where did you get the priest from? I think that is the kind of shirt that would be the most suitable, said Wither, laying it on the bed. Uh, the suits are in here. Uh, the uh, clerical personage said he had come to an an in answer to our advertisement. I wish to do full justice to the point of view you have expressed, my dear Frost. On the other hand, to reject the real Merlinus, to alienate a power which is an integral factor in our plan, would be at least equally dangerous. It is not even certain that the priest would in any event be an enemy. He may have made independent contact with the macrobes. He may be a potential ally. Did you think he looked like it? His priesthood is against him. All that we now want, said Wither, is a collar and a tie. Forgive me for saying that I have never been able to share your root and branch attitude to religion. I am not speaking of dogmatic Christianity in its primitive form, but within religious circles, ecclesiastical circles, types of spirituality of very real value do from time to time arise. When they do, they sometimes reveal great energy. Father Doyle, though not very talented, is one of our soundest colleagues, and Mr. Strake has in him the germs of that total allegiance. Objectivity, I believe, is the term you prefer, which is so rare. It doesn't do to be in any way narrow. What do you actually propose to do? We will, of course, consult the head at once. I use that term, you understand, purely for convenience. But how can you? Have you forgotten that this is the night of the inaugural banquet and that Jules is coming down? He may be here in an hour. You'll be dancing attendance on him till midnight. For a moment, Withers' face remained still, the mouth wide open. He had indeed forgotten that the puppet director, the dupe of the Institute, by whom it duped the public, was coming that night. But the realization that he had forgotten troubled him more than it would have troubled another. It was like the cold, first cold breath of winter, the first little hint of a crack in that great secondary self or mental machine which he had built up to carry on the business of living, while he, the real wither, floated far away on the indeterminate frontiers of ghosthood. God bless my soul, he said. You have therefore to consider at once, said Frost, what to do with these two men this very evening. It is out of the question they should attend the banquet. It would be madness to leave them to their own devices. Which reminds me that we have already left them alone, and with Studdick too, for over ten minutes. We must go back with the clothes at once. 
And without a plan, inquired Frost, though following Wither out of the room as he said it. We must be guided by circumstances, said Wither. They were greeted on their return by a babble of imploring Latin from the man in the cassock. Let me go, he said. I entreat you, do not, for your mother's sake, do not do violence to a harmless, a poor harmless old man. I will tell nothing. God forgive me, I but I cannot stay here. This man who says he is my lion has come back from the dead. He is a diabolist, a worker of infernal miracles. Look, look what he did to the poor young man the moment you had left the room. He pointed to her markedly unconscious in his chair. He did it with his eye, only by looking at him. The evil eye, the evil eye. Silence, said Frost in the same language, and listen. If you do what you're told, no harm will come to you. If you do not, you will be destroyed. I think that if you are troublesome, you may lose your soul as well as your life, for you do not sound likely to be a martyr. The man whimpered, covered his face with his hands. Suddenly, not as if he wished to, but as if he were a machine that had been worked, Frost kicked him. Get on, he said. Tell him we have brought such clothes as men wear now. The man did not stagger when he was kicked. The end of it was the tramp was washed and dressed. When this had been done, the man in the cassock said, He is saying that he must now be taken on a journey through all your house and shown the secrets. Tell him, said Wither, that it will be a very great pleasure and privilege. But here the tramp spoke again. He says, translated the big man, first that he must see the head and the beasts and the criminals who are being tormented. Secondly, he will go with one of you alone, with you, sir. And here he turned to Wither. I will allow, allow no such arrangement, said Frost in English. My dear Frost, said Wither, this is hardly the moment, and one of us must be free to meet Jules. The tramp had spoken again. Forgive me, said the man in the cassock. I must follow what he says. The words are not mine. He forbids you to talk in his presence in a tongue which he cannot, even through me, understand. And he says that it is an old habit of his to be obeyed. He is asking now whether you wish to have him for a friend or an enemy. Frost took a pace nearer to the pseudo-Merlin so that his shoulder touched the rusty cassock of the real one. Wither thought that Frost had intended to say something but had grown afraid. In reality, Frost found it impossible to remember any words. Perhaps it was due to the rapid shifts from Latin to English which had been going on. He could not speak. Nothing but nonsense syllables would occur to his mind. He had long known that his continued intercourse with the beings he called macrobes might have effects on his psychology which he could not predict. In a dim sort of way, the possibility of complete destruction was never out of his thoughts. He had schooled himself not to attend to it. Now it seemed to be descending on him. He reminded himself that fear was only a chemical phenomenon. For the moment, clearly, he must step out of the struggle, come to himself, and make a new start later in the evening. For, of course, this could not be final. At the very worst, it could only be, only be the first hint of the end. Probably he had years to work before him. He would outlast Wither. He would kill the priest. Even Merlin, if it was Merlin, might not stand better with the macrobes than himself. He stood aside, and the tramp, accompanied by the real Merlin and the deputy director, left the room. <coughs> Frost had been right in thinking that the aphasia would be only temporary. As soon as they were alone, he found no difficulty in saying, as he shook Mark by the shoulder, Get up. What do you mean by sleeping here? Come with me to the objective room. Section 4. How long is this? Mm. 
Before proceeding to their tour of inspection, Merlin demanded robes for the tramp, and Wither finally dressed him as a doctor of philosophy of the University of Edstow. Thus arrayed, walking with his eyes half shut, and as delicately as if he were treading on eggs, the bewildered tinker was led upstairs and downstairs, and through the zoo and into the cells. Every now and then his face underwent a kind of spasm, as if he were trying to say something, but he never succeeded in producing any words except when the real Merlin asked him a question and fixed him with his eye. Of course, all this was not to the tramp what it would have been to anyone who made an educated and wealthy man's demands upon the universe. It was, no doubt, a rum-do, the rummest-do that ever befallen him. The mere sensation of being clean all over would have made it that even apart from the crimson robe and the fact that his own mouth kept on uttering sounds he did not understand without his own consent. But it was not by any means the first inexplicable thing that had been done to him. Meanwhile, in the objective room, something like a crisis had developed between Mark and Professor Frost. As soon as they arrived there, Mark saw the table had been drawn back. On the floor lay a large crucifix, almost life-size, a work of art in the Spanish tradition, ghastly and realistic. We have half an hour to pursue our exercises, said Frost, looking at his watch. Then he instructed Mark to trample on it and insult it in other ways. Now, whereas Jane had abandoned Christianity in early childhood, along with her belief in fairies and Santa Claus, Mark had never believed in it at all. At this moment, therefore, it crossed his mind for the very first time that there might conceivably be something in it. Frost, who had been watching him carefully, knew perfectly well that this might be the result of the present experiment. He knew it for the very good reason that his own training by the macrobes had, at one point, suggested the same odd idea to himself. But he had no choice. Whether he wished it or not, this sort of thing was part of the initiation. But look here, said Mark. What is it, said Frost. Pray be quick. We have only a limited time at our disposal. This, said Mark, pointing with an undefined reluctance to the horrible white figure on the cross, this is all surely a pure superstition. Well, well, if so, what is their objective about stamping on the face? Isn't it just as subjective to spit on a thing like this as to worship it? I mean, damn it all. If it's only a bit of wood, why do anything about it? That is superficial. If you had been brought up in a non-Christian society, you would not be asked to do this. Of course it is superstition, but it is that particular superstition which has pressed upon our society for a great many centuries. It can be experimentally shown that it still forms a dominant system in the subconscious of many individuals whose conscious thought appears to be wholly liberated. An explicit action in the reverse direction is therefore necessary to step towards complete objectivity. It is not a question for an a priori discussion. We find it in practice that it cannot be dispensed with. Mark himself was surprised at the emotions he was undergoing. He did not regard the image with anything at all like a religious feeling. Most emphatically, it did not belong to that idea of the straight or normal or wholesome, which had, for the last few days, been his support against what he now knew of the innermost circle at Belbury. The horrible vigor of its realism, indeed, in its own way, as remote from that idea as anything else in the room. That was one source of his reluctance. To insult even a carved image of such agony seemed an abominable act, but it was not the only source. With the introduction of this Christian symbol, the whole situation had somehow altered. The thing was becoming incalculable. His simple antithesis of the normal and the diseased had obviously failed to take something into account. Why was the crucifix there? Why were more than half the poisonous pictures religious? He had the sense of new parties to the conflict, 
potential allies and enemies which he had not suspected before. If I take a step in any direction, he thought, I may step over a precipice. A donkey-like determination to plant hooves and stay still at all costs arose in his mind. Pray make haste, said Frost. The quiet urgency of the voice and the fact that he had so often obeyed it before almost conquered him. He was on the verge of obeying and getting the whole silly business over when the defenselessness of the figure deterred him. The feeling was a very illogical one, not because its hands were nailed and helpless, but because they were only made of wood, and therefore even more helpless, because the thing, for all of its realism, was inanimate and could not in any way hit back. He paused. The unretaliating face of a doll, one of Myrtle's dolls, which he had pulled to pieces in boyhood, had affected him in the same way, and the memory even now was tender to the touch. "'What are you waiting for, Mr. Studdock?' said Frost." Mark was well aware of the rising danger. Obviously, if he had disobeyed, his last chance of getting out of Belbury alive might be gone, <coughs> even of getting out of this room. The smothering sensation once again attacked him. He was himself, he felt, as helpless as the wooden Christ. As he thought this, he found himself looking at the crucifix in a new way, neither as a piece of wood nor a monument of superstition, but as a bit of history. Christianity was nonsense, but one did not doubt that the man had lived and had been executed thus by the Belbury of those days, and that, as he suddenly saw, explained why this image, though not itself an image of the straight or normal, was yet in opposition to crooked Belbury. It was a picture of what happened when the straight met the crooked, a picture of what the crooked did to the straight, or what it would do to him if he remained straight. It was, in a more emphatic sense than he had yet understood, a cross. Do you intend to go on with the training or not, said Frost. His eye was on the time. He knew that those others were conducting their tour of inspection and that Jules must have very nearly reached Belbury. He knew that he might be interrupted at any moment. He had chosen this time for this stage in Mark's initiation, partly in obedience to an unexplained impulse. Such impulses grew more frequent with him every day, but partly because he wished on this uncertain situation which had now arisen to secure Mark at once. He and Wither, and possibly by now Strake, were the only full initiates in the NICE. On them lay the danger of making any false step in dealing with the man who claimed to be Merlin and with his mysterious interpreter. For him, who took the right steps, there was a chance of ousting all the others, of becoming to them what they were to the rest of the Institute and what the Institute was to the rest of England. He knew that Wither was waiting eagerly for any slip on his own part, Hence, it seemed to him, of the utmost importance to bring Mark as soon as possible beyond that point after which there is no return, and the disciples' allegiance both to the Macrobes and to the teacher who has initiated him becomes a matter of psychological or even physical necessity. Do you not hear what I am saying? he asked Mark again. Mark made no reply. He was thinking, and thinking hard, because he knew that if he stopped even for a moment, mere terror of death would take the decision out of his hands. Christianity was a fable. It would be ridiculous to die for a religion one did not believe. This man himself, on that very cross, had discovered it to be a fable, and died complaining that the God in whom he had trusted had forsaken him, had, in fact, found the universe a cheat. But this raised a question that Mark had never thought of before. Was that the moment at which to turn against the man? If the universe was a cheat, was that a good reason for joining its side? Supposing the straight was utterly powerless, always and everywhere certain to be mocked, tortured, and finally killed by the crooked, what then? Why not go down with the ship? 
He began to be frightened by the very fact that his fears seemed to have momentarily vanished. They had been a safeguard. They had prevented him all of his life from making mad decisions like that, which he was now making as he turned to Frost and said, It's all bloody nonsense, and I'm damned if I'll do any such thing. When he said this, he had no idea what might happen next. He did not know whether Frost would ring a bell, or produce a revolver, or renew his demands. In fact, Frost simply went on staring at him as he stared back. Then he saw that Frost was listening and began to listen himself. A moment later, the door opened. The room seemed suddenly to be full of people. A man in a red gown, Mark did not instantly recognize the tramp, and the huge man in the black gown and wither.